One of my favorite places on this earth is Utopia, Texas. Uh, we have been there many times over the years, especially enjoying our friend Sarah's cabin that is uh, out on the Sabinal River. When I am there, I just relax, and I look, and I listen. I really listen when I'm there. Because of that, I learn more every single time we go. A few years ago, uh, Sarah, our friend, took us back to their back pasture, and they have a big limestone uh, hole there that is, a, that is a spring. And we just stood there and just listened to the burbling water coming up out of that nice, cool spring the, uh, the wild color of the limestone water. And then as we stood there and listened and we thought, we realized that this probably would have been a popular place with the earliest settlers. So we just moved out from the water hole a little bit and we began to dig. And sure enough, we were rewarded with a whole bunch of arrowheads and pottery shards that were just barely under the surface of the soil. Another time we sat at dusk floating in tubes on the Sabinal and we watched the bats feeding, uh, eating all the insects at night from underneath Seven Mile Bridge. And, uh, and I, you, may, you may have known this, I, I didn't know this, that some of their echolocation screeches that they make are actually audible to human ears. And I didn't know that, so I sat there and learned about how I could, I could hear the bats. It was really cool, as long as they were far away. It was great. Um, and then one night, I remember this, one night we set out and we listened. We just sat and listened to the gray foxes hunting. They are so stealthy. I mean, they are so quiet. You can barely hear them as they move. But when they attack, whoo, I mean, it is really ferocious. It, it's amazing. It's a really cool thing to hear. The point is, going to the same place and listening carefully deepened my understanding. It, it expands you. And, and when you go somewhere and you camp there and you, and you listen, it really increases your love for that spot. Something similar can happen when we read the Scriptures that reveal Jesus to us. When we camp in the Gospels or in, in Revelation, we have this amazing opportunity to listen to Jesus. And we always learn more when we're quiet before Him. It expands our understanding. It deepens our love for Him even more. Right now, we are camping in just such a place. We're, we're reading the letters that John sent to seven churches, uh, Revelation 2 through 3. Take a look at the map there inside your worship guide. You got one when you came in. You got a bulletin. Open that up. Look on the left-hand side at the map and find the little island of Patmos. Revelation opens with the apostle John there. He is exiled to Patmos because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, John was very likely a young teen when he became Jesus' disciple. Now, when Revelation begins, John is very old, and the first century is drawing to a close. Think about that, if you would. What would your attitude be? Condemned to a rocky island, far away from all your friends and family, sent by the nasty government of the emperor Domitian, persecuted just because you're a Christian, wouldn't you feel sorry for yourself? I think I would struggle with sorrow for sure, and, and I hate to say it, but probably some whiny defeatism. I think I would, not John. By everything we see and hear, his attitude is triumphant on Patmos. Here's how my old teacher put it. Great article by Bill Lawrence. He says, the kingdom of Rome exiled John, but he was part of a different kingdom, one from which he could never be exiled and which was far greater than Rome, close quote. In fact, John survived on that little rock of Patmos. He even outlived the emperor Domitian, and he was released from his exile. At least part of what got John through was the fact that he listened to God's Word. He listened. 
His time on that deserted rock was spent paying attention to Jesus, paying attention to Scripture. I trust you realize that our survival on this rock we call earth is dependent on the same thing. Our triumph will be determined by how well we listen to God's Word. On Patmos, here's what happened. The glorified Jesus appeared to his old friend John. In fact, Jesus appeared to him the way he had long before in the transfiguration when Peter and James and John were on the mountain and they saw Jesus, except this time John has more time and he gets to observe even more detail. And he listens to Jesus as Jesus speaks this purpose statement for the entire book of Revelation. Here's the purpose he gives to John. He says, Revelation 1.19, Therefore write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. That's, that's the whole key to understanding the book of Revelation. What you have seen, what is, what will take place after. What you have seen. That, what was it John had seen? Jesus, the glorified Jesus. Yeah, he, he's seen the Lord in his majesty. He's seen the engagement of Jesus walking among his churches. This is something earlier Christians tried to capture in this gold mosaic at the Hagia Sophia. They were trying to capture Revelation chapter 1, which is all about what John had seen. What's the second part of Jesus' command that encapsulates John's purpose in writing? It is what is, yeah. What is are the seven churches Jesus chooses to address. Now, there are others. Of course, there are many other churches by 90 A.D., <clears throat> but Jesus addresses this bunch. He follows. He takes them in order of the circular Roman road that connected them all, and he lists a letter to every single church, and that's what our series is about. What is is detailed in chapters 2 and 3, the portion we've been learning. Now, that brings up a question I know you're surely asking in your uh, Lightning McQueen imitation. Um, Mater, does that mean what Jesus writes to these seven churches was only for them? Owen oh, Wilson, you know. Yeah. Um, thank you, Lightning. Great question. No, that is not true at all. Look at this comment. This is from my personal notes as I was studying. The letters to each church apply to all fellowships of any place and time, telling us how to build victoriously. Writing in the late third century, Victorinus remarks that Jesus addresses, quote, the seven churches to whom he wrote epistles. Not that they are themselves the only or even the principal churches, but what he says to one, he says to whom, everybody? All. He says to all, close quote. Now, one more thing before we dive into today's text. Every exhortation in Revelation 2 through 3 contains the same command from Jesus. Each time he says, listen, listen, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. These texts are designed to be to be still refreshing waters beside which we sit and we listen. Read with me our series objective. You get the underlined part. The objective is what we hope to see God accomplish in us through this study, everyone together, that we build for victory by listening to and obeying Jesus. Amen. Today we settle at the church in Philadelphia. And if you thought the gray fox was formidable, get a load of Jesus here. Open your Bible, Revelation chapter 3. Uh, it's the last book in your New Testament. Go to Revelation chapter 3. And let's read verse 7. Revelation 3, 7. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, who closes and no one opens. Four amazing truths. Stop there. Four amazing truths about Jesus in verse 7. First, Jesus is the Holy One. The Holy One, his particular way of speaking that emphasizes Jesus is the only one who is truly and inherently holy. We still use this kind of language today. So, for example, in this lineup of people, who is the tall one? Right? It's that dude, right? In this lineup of cars, who is the fast one? Lightning McQueen, right? 
He's our hero. He's the fast one. In a similar way, Jesus is the holy one. His holiness is not derived from any other source. He isn't drafting another fast car. He's not standing on somebody else's shoulders to be tall. He is inherently the holy one. Jesus is also authentic. That's what's, that's what's behind aletinos, uh, what we translate the true one. Listen carefully. Aletinos is a loaded term. This is a well-known, really, really important word. Every educated person in the first century knew that this was the word that Plato used to describe that which is real and absolute truth. In a world where sophists were claiming that each person could just make up their own truth, Plato used this word, aletinos, in his proof that right and wrong are not malleable. They are authentic. They are set. In fact, Plato added this. Plato said, one can only have faith in that which is authentic. Aletheos is necessary if one is going to trust something, close quote. Isn't that cool? That's why the true one is such a dramatic statement. Jesus is that which is real, absolute, trustworthy. Faith is only possible because of aletheos. All God's people said? Next, the Lord uses a far lesser known statement. Uh, he, he says he is the one who has the key of David. Now, this seems to be a reference to Isaiah 22. In Isaiah 22, God speaks through Isaiah about a certain steward, a guy named Eliakim. Now, what's going to happen, God tells us in Isaiah 22, is that he's going to remove this guy who is an untrustworthy steward. He's a, he's a bad apple. He's going to remove him, and he's going to put Eliakim in his place as the chief steward. Here, here's the passage, verse 22. I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. Okay, what, what, is, what is that telling us? Well, Jesus, uh, Eliakim is now going to have access to all the wealth of the king. As a trustworthy steward, he is going to be the one who opens the door and distributes treasure appropriately as it should be done. Jesus quotes that reference to show that he is the one who gives spiritual treasures. He is the steward of God's kingdom. He is the king. He is the one who opens the treasures. He distributes them appropriately. He has the key of David. He's also the sovereign Lord. Eliakim was a type of Jesus, a foretaste of the Messiah. Eliakim had the full authority of the king. That's what's behind the brilliant image there, open and close. He could open a door, nobody could close it. He could say, leave that door, leave that door closed, no one could countermand him. In a similar way, Jesus is God the Son. He has full stewardship over all creation. He represents God the Father. He represents God the Spirit. When he speaks, no one can counter his orders. This week... Uh, we host Pine Cove's camp in the city. Pine Cove does one thing really, really well with their employees, something we learned way back when I worked there. They, they make sure that each person has authority commensurate with their responsibility. That's really, that's really significant part of life. Each staff person has the authority needed to do his or her job. But every one of them is also under authority. That's why every single job description for Pine Cove has section E. At least it was Section E when I worked there. I think it still is. Every single job description, it was always Section E in every one. Section E reads, you will perform any other duties as assigned by your director. Right? Except for the, except for the executive director of the camps, the, the, C, the CEO, his says assigned by the board. Okay? But everyone works for someone else. In a flawed human sense, that gets kind of close to what Jesus is saying. The last part of verse 7 is a Section E. It's telling everybody that Jesus is completely in charge as the sovereign Lord. The people of earth will do the duties that Jesus, the director, assigns. 
Amen? Amen. Now, read verse 8. Verse 8. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close, because you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. As we headline on the right side of the notes, Jesus commends the church. Now, this is a tricky passage to translate. It's actually clearer in an older translation. I'd like you to listen to it from the New American Standard. I know your deeds. Behold, I put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. <clears throat> We're going to come back to that open door part um, that Jesus has put before the church in Philadelphia. First, I'd like us to look at the three things he praises in the church. In fact, I really, really hope that as a result of our study today, these are three things that are praised in you and me and in our church as well. Uh, let's, start, let's take them in reverse order, okay? The first one we're going to take is maintaining their witness for Christ. They have not denied his name. Now, of course, that elicits a response in your uh, Luigi accent from Cars. That it doesn't seem so hard. Uh, how could I deny the one who saved me? How could I deny Jesus? Uh, thank you, Luigi. I hope you never do. But it may prove harder than you think. I met recently with a Chinese pastor who runs a series of seminary training facilities, um, meeting places for pastors to be trained. And, uh, and we talked about how difficult his life has become. He wasn't whining at all, but he was just telling me how he has to keep his work secret. He's not going to deny Jesus, but, but he is always in danger every day. And in the United States, I'm not sure it's all that much different. I think many, many parts of our culture are falling under what the Spanish call dicta blanda. Are you familiar with Dicta Blanda? Dicta Blanda is a dictatorship in which civil liberties are allegedly preserved from attack. That's what it looks like is happening, but in actuality, it's not what's happening. Anyone who dares to disagree with the, the person in charge, the party in charge, is silenced, ostensibly to protect other people. But that's not really what's going on. It's just to take power and silence them. By the way, the Spanish made up, uh, in Spain, they made up this word during the Spanish Civil Wars. It's a combination, it's a pun, it's a combination of dictadura, which is dictatorship in Spanish, and blanda, which is soft. I was thinking about this and, and thinking about how they maintain their witness to Christ, and I got a phone call last week. It was fascinating. Just as I was writing and working all this, I got a call from a friend in Seattle. And I said, hey, I'm looking at this stuff. What's that like in your life? And he said, oh, man. And he began to tell me about how costly it has become, how difficult it has become just in the last few years for him to maintain his witness as a Christian business owner in, in his city. And, uh, and I prayed for him, and we talked for a while and then hung up. And then he sent me a, an email that had this meme on it. It's based on George Orwell's 1984, and it has the, support your local thought police, don't speak out or question. And the policeman's saying, looks like you've had a bit too much to think. And, uh, and I love the bottom, closed minds stop thought crimes. Uh, apparently, it's a fairly popular meme among his friends in his city. It is a scary world, folks. And yet, if we want to enjoy the rewards that only Jesus can unlock, he has the key of David. If we want to enjoy these rewards, we have to maintain our witness. We also should emulate Philadelphia in keeping scriptural fidelity. This church has not abandoned God's word. They have not warped the Bible to make it say what they desire. In fact, they've done the exact opposite. This is so cool. The Greek we translate, you have kept, is tereo. Now, tereo is a newer word. This is a newer, it doesn't even appear in old classical Greek at all. It started off as a term for keeping guard over something, to, to watch something carefully. But in the years just before Jesus' birth, tereo began to be used in a different way. It began to be used. It still meant something you watch, but it was something to which you conform, something that changes you, something which you obey. Isn't that awesome? 
they don't just keep scriptural orthodoxy. They don't just protect the scripture. They are molded by God's word. Oh, my goodness. I, 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 I hope you realize and don't practice, but I hope you realize that a lot of times people like us who are theologically conservative, who wonderfully are excited about protecting and preserving God's word, we're so busy protecting orthodoxy, we never let it change us. It happens, and it's horrible. The Philadelphians are so wise. They, they didn't do that. They show us how to really live. Tereo, you are changed by that which you guard. Jesus praises Philly and Asia. They maintain their witness. They keep biblical orthodoxy, and he commends them for doing so by grace. Now, that's what's behind the clever phrase where he says, little power of your own. Some people get confused, understandably, and they think this is a slap on the church. Al contraire, it is not. The key word is echo, what, what we translate hold. This is a favorite term of John and Jesus. They use echo all the time. It, in this usage, it means to have something uh, that you possess. It is something of your own. Something about which you would say, mine, mine, mine. This is something you really hold as your own. The Philadelphians are so wise. They recognize that they have very little strength of their own. They understand that humans are not as strong as we think we are. Nothing is really mine. God is the provider of power. His grace is the only reliable source of strength. That's why the Scriptures teach us all the time to yield to the Lord's Spirit instead of operating in our own paltry little fleshly power. It's the exact same idea expressed by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But God said to me, to Paul, God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Paul goes on, therefore I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I'll take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm what, everybody? Then I'm strong, right? Amen. Okay, with that in mind, let's stop right now for a little assessment. Look in your, look in your notes. You're going to see nine gut check questions in your notes. I encourage you, I strongly encourage you to put a mark, you'll see why in a moment, put a mark beside each statement that is true for you. Let's take these three great things that God praises about the Philadelphians. First is maintaining witness, and let's see how we're doing. Question number one, or statement number one, I have minimized or hidden my Christianity in order to be more popular. Just, I, I did, I had to put a check by that one. See if you do. Second one, I have lived in fear of humans. Third question, I have muddied my witness with sinful behavior. Have you done that? Put a little mark there. Next set of questions have to do with scriptural fidelity, with tereo, with, with being changed by that which we guard. I have worked to make scripture say what I want it to say. Not what it says, what I want it to say. Big difference. Second statement, I have used the that was then excuse or some form of trajectory that was then idea to, to change the meaning of the Bible. Now, we're, we're not talking about legitimate, healthy, historical understanding, literary understanding, grammatical understanding so that I can really understand the text in its context. That's very healthy. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about taking it and going to something that I don't like, that is convicting, or I don't think is cool, or I don't think is hip, and I just say, well, that, that's not for us. That was only for them. You ever done that? Put a little check. I have shown a lazy lack of discipline in my Bible study. Yeah, I, I had to check that one, too. I've done that. Okay. Got it? Third set of questions. 
operating by grace, little power, God's power instead. I have tried to do good by my fleshly power alone. I really have tried to do good things, but I was doing them, not letting God empower me to do them. Yeah, I think you ought to check that one. I have gone a day. Is this true for anybody else? I've gone an entire day without actively trusting God with anything. At no point did I actively trust God with any aspect of my life, my day. You ever done that? I am distanced from redeemed community. There, there are people who, if I would get in fellowship and do the hard work to be in fellowship, they would step on my toes. They would remind me where I'm operating in the flesh. They would remind me to rest in God's spirit. But I've pulling away. I've distanced from that. Okay. Now, here's why I wanted you to check them off. The places where we put check marks, and some of us put many, those are where we're not listening to Jesus very effectively. Look, look, at, look at your check marks. Those are your danger zones. You need to keep alert in those areas. Those are the areas where you need Philadelphia freedom. Philadelphia. That's where you need it, right? All right, now, let's read verses 9 and 10. In fact, let's start with verse 8 because it connects to it. Uh, verse 8, I know your deeds. Behold, I put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Verse 9, note this. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying... I'll make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Stop there. Jesus rewards the church. The, the Lord who has the key opens up the kingdom's treasure. He's giving them these rewards. We're going to cover this section more rapidly. First, the church is granted an open door. I don't know exactly what that means. The context here gives us very little help figuring out what he means by open door. Now, most Bible scholars think this describes an open opportunity for evangelism, for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, and that's very likely. But it could mean an open door to help other churches get straightened out. It could be just an opportunity for richer fellowship, open door within their church. Either way, no matter what, it is a great honor. It is a reward for God's church. The they are unstoppable. That's the key thing. Whether it's evangelism, ability to help others, koinonia fellowship, they are an unstoppable force because the Lord God Almighty is holding open a door that no opposition can close, no sickness can close, no problem can close, no government can close. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Second reward is the church will be vindicated. Now, most scholars think this is a temporal promise. That means something that Jesus says will occur on this earth as opposed to in eternity. Synagogue of Satan. That's a very derisive depiction of these Jews who have rejected Jesus as a Messiah. God says those people are going to realize they were wrong. They're in fact going to come to the believers at this church and they're going to ask for their help. And that is exactly what happened in history. Third century, early third century, just over 100 years after Jesus dictated this letter, there was a massive wave of Jewish conversions at Philadelphia in this city. Um, William Ramsey, and, and I'm not sure that he's right about this, but, but he very well could be. The great British scholar William Ramsey said this about that, about that conversion in the early 3rd century. He said it was the largest wave of Jewish conversions to Christ since the day of Pentecost. That's Acts chapter 2. Wow, pretty amazing. Now, there is a chance that Jesus' reward in verse 9 is not temporal. That's not what it's describing. He may be describing the vindication that is promised to all Christians before our Father. Other passages, I, I trust you know this, other passages make it clear that glorified believers in Christ, we are going to judge the nations. That could be what verse 9 is talking about. 
in a similar way. Verse 10 can be understood as an earthly reward or an eternal one. The promise is the church will be removed from the worldwide testing to come. Now, a lot of people look at that and they see tribulation language, end time language, and it could be. But, but the passage itself doesn't say so. This may instead be describing a particular temporal reward. For example, in history, Philadelphia held out far, far longer than any other city in Asia Minor on the, when the Arabs came and conquered that whole area, and then when the Turks came and conquered after them, Philadelphia was never conquered. It wasn't until 1390 that Philadelphia finally fell to the Turks. That's, long, that's just before Constantinople itself fell. That is long after any other. Their entire world was overrun by these Turks, and Philadelphia was holding out. And get this, all the sources we have tell us that every single Christian in Philadelphia got out. They, got, they all, when the city was finally going to fall, they all got out, and they safely got up to the Rus who accepted them. They made it to Russia. The non-Christians didn't get out. They stayed behind, and they were slaughtered so thoroughly the Timur the Lame, a guy we call Tamerlane in the West, he made a wall out of their corpses. And it's horrific. When the British finally took that area, they, uh, they wanted those people to be memorialized and remembered, so they took a section of that wall. And you can see it if you go to Lincoln, England, in the Lincoln Cathedral Library, there's a section of the wall that is, is that to memorialize those people. That could be what is being described here. You're going to be saved from that. You'll make it to safety. Again, though, it could be dealing with end times. I mean, this is parallel to the promises we have about the Great Tribulation. There is a blessed hope, friends. There is a blessed hope for all Christians that we will be saved from the worldwide disaster that God calls the time of Jacob's trouble. So, Jesus has commended the church. He's promised rewards. Now he exhorts the church. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Jesus says he's coming soon. Now, we must add according to his measure of soon. Remember, soon is not the same for us as it is for God the Son, who operates both without and within space-time. That's why a thousand years to us, trapped in our space-time cocoon, that a thousand years is like one day to him. Think, think of it like this. Think of it like this. Suppose you're a camp counselor, okay? It's, um, it's Sunday of your eighth straight week of camp, all right? You're exhausted, in a few hours, hundreds and hundreds of children are going to be descending upon you and your mates, right? Now, you, lo you love these kids. You've prayed for them. You are so excited to serve them. But I just want to ask you, how quickly does time move that last afternoon of peace and quiet that you have? What do you think? Yeah, I can testify from personal experience. You could use the hands of that clock for a fan, okay? It flies, by contrast, suppose you're an elementary boy, right? And you are so excited to meet your counselor. You only get to go to camp one week, right? And you can't you wait till tomorrow to meet your counselor. How long does that last Sunday afternoon last? Forever. Forever, right? It goes on forever. Okay, that's Jesus and his coming soon, right? That's what it means, coming soon. Throughout the New Testament, by the way, you need to know this. Whenever the Lord says he's coming soon, it is both a relief and a motivator. It is a relief, but it's also a motivator. It, it's, it's a little like how I felt in college when my parents were going to be coming down for a, for a time. I was so excited to see my parents again. I was so excited to spend time with them. I was so excited to have them pay for everything. It was just great to have my parents. But, 
But also, every time my parents were coming, I also knew that that meant mom was going to investigate and find out just how long it had actually been since I'd done my laundry. Yeah. For some reason, mom frowned on just turning the underwear inside out and wearing them more days. She didn't think that was cool. That's a little like Jesus' coming appearance. Because he's coming for all Christians, they should, look what he says, they should hold on. Jesus exhorts them to keep what they have so no one takes their crown. They should keep all those good things the Lord prays. Remember their witness, their fidelity to the Bible, their living by grace. If a Christian doesn't keep hold of these blessings, he or she may lose their crown. The, the Ramones, of all people, the Ramones actually wrote a poem that has great insight on this verse. Look, look, here's what the Ramones wrote. You've got to learn to listen. Listen to learn. You've got to learn to listen before you get burned. Happiness is something you've got to earn. You've got to fight to make your love into returns. It's a great point. Now, that, of course, brings up the question that, that Fillmore is, is asking, where George Carlin, who played Fillmore, says, Dude, what's up with this crown thing? I mean, what is, like, what is that? Great question. Thank you, Fillmore. The, the answer is the word we render crown is Stephanos. Stephanos. It's your fancy word for the day, boys and girls. On the count of three, you have to say Stephanos. One, two, three. Stephanos. Stephanos. Very good. A Stephanos is the victor's crown. It's the wreath of glory that was worn by any champion in a Greek sporting event. This is an image the Philadelphians would have known very, very well. They would have understood. And Jesus and John are explaining that they're, going to, they're using that image to explain there's going to be rewards given to people who serve Jesus well. So God says, hold on. Don't lose that reward. Dr. Ironside had a great observation on this. Look what he said. Observe that the warning is let no one take thy crown. It is not let no man take thy life or thy salvation. That's eternally secure in Christ. Being born of God, I cannot lose my salvation. But if I'm not a faithful servant, I can lose my crown. Indeed. All right, let's wrap up the letter with verses 12 and 13. 12 and 13, Jesus blesses the church. 12 and 13. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus blesses the church. He reminds Christians that in him they overcome. We, we've covered this in the other letters, so just a brief reminder. The, the overcomer is anyone who trusts Jesus as Savior. First uh, John 5, 5 is the other appearance of this exact same terminology. So when it's the same terminology, it, it's saying the same thing. And it's very clear in 1 John 5, 5 that overcomers are believers in Jesus. They conquer because they are in Him who is the great overcomer. Jesus says Christians overcome. He also promises permanence of place in God's eternal temple. What a blessed reminder for Christians who have so often been displaced. I mean... I know this is rather hard for us to imagine because you and I live in a relatively stable place in a relatively stable epic for churches, but Christians in Asia Minor, they have been knocked about a very, very great deal. The various pogroms and diasporas of the Christians in Asia Minor are really disturbing, folks. Over the centuries, the believers there have been displaced many, many times. First, it was by, by pagan Eastern Romans, what we call Byzantine people, then, then Muslims, then uh, Venetians, then Turks, then Russians, then Slavs, then Soviets, and now modern Turkey persecutes them. Compare that, all that movement, with what Jesus promises to them and to all believers. He will give us a blessed permanence of place. Obviously, pillars is a metaphor, right? Pillars is a metaphor for something that is necessary. 
You can't remove them. It is an immovable part. We will be necessary. How cool is that? God will rely on us for the most important thing. You do know what the most important thing in all the universe is. It is God's worship. And we are going to be the ones who uphold the temple of his praise. Can I get an amen to that? Jesus adds one last blessing. Christians are going to be tattooed, or or at least sharpied, uh, with three names. The Father, the Son, and the New Jerusalem. Now, this is almost certainly an image. It's a metaphor for a a breathtaking closeness, acceptance, and, and unity. It's very doubtful that Jesus actually will write on each of us with a sharpie. He could, but it appears to be a metaphor. And the image means that each believer is going to be so close to to Jesus and the Father and the kingdom of the new Jerusalem that that Christian is going to be branded as part of an inner circle. When I walk into a business on Main Street in Bethany, Oklahoma, my childhood hometown, like like a, a year ago when I walked into McClure's Flowers there, I go in the door, and this happens every time. Oh, my goodness, it's Wayne Broderick. Come back home, right? hear that every time. It is Bethany, Oklahoma is imprinted on me. It is written on my soul. I I know I'm accepted there. That's exactly how every one of us Christians, that's how we're going to feel about the New Jerusalem. This is home. And and look, we'll be intimately known by God the Father. We're going to be so close that His his name will be on us. We're going to be so tight with God the Son, we're going to have His new name. You know what's really amazing about that? Other passages tell us this new name isn't known by anyone yet. It's going to be revealed when Jesus makes all things new, and that is going to be on us. Jesus says, listen, step out spiritually into the desert country where you can really hear. Listen. I'm telling you, it's amazing, but the Ramones actually give the best commentary on this verse of anyone. That poem we referenced earlier, they continue. Look what they say. you got to have a plan. you got to learn to listen. got to take a step. You have my blessing. Got to take the cotton out of your ears. You got to start hanging on to all your affairs. I've lived your life for so many years. All I got was self pity and tears. Close quote. Let's get the cotton out of our ears. Let's stop the self pity. Stop the self pity. Let's hold on to God's blessings. Let's listen to what the triune God is saying. And let's make a personal plan for applying this to our lives. Here, pray with me. Pray with me about this. Let's pray together. Um, let's, let's do this. Why don't you turn in your heart, turn to the Almighty God who is here and who is with you. And let me, let me guide you in some questions. Why don't you ask God this? Lord, what can I do to better enjoy your grace? L- little power. What can I do to be like the Philadelphians and enjoy little power and lots of grace? Show me. Do I need to set some kind of daily discipline to remind myself regularly all the time about your grace? What's going to help me most? Will it it be a regular prayer time? Is it going to be accountability with another person, journaling? Show me. What will be best for me to do? What's the best plan? Ask God this. What needs to change for me to keep scriptural fidelity? Tereo, where I keep it and it changes me. Lord, I'm open to whatever you need to reveal. Show me where I'm not taking your word seriously. 
Show me if I have chosen a church home that doesn't take on important scriptural issues. Am I slack in my Bible study? What is best for me to do to listen? To Ask God this. Lord, how can I open up the door or take the open door that you've opened? How can I go through the door for evangelism that you've opened in my life? How can I maintain a solid witness? You have given me this opportunity. What can I do? Not somewhere else, right here, right now where you've planted me. What specifically are disciplines I need to do to walk through that door? Father, you have blessed us so, so, so richly. You've blessed us with word and witness. Seeing all these blessings reminds us to specifically thank you for everything, everything you shower on us now and forever. What, what can we do but thank you? Amen.